to have an understanding and knowledge that we are loved by God and that you have done something so wonderful. It's beyond our understanding, but we know somehow deep in our spirit we know that, that it's your purposes for humanity and for us, your people, are just so wonderful, so wonderful. We pray that the sense of your glory, the sense of what you're doing in us and among us and in the world, in spite of the terrible things that are happening in the world, we praise you that grace is prevailing. Lord, we praise you that no one passes away um, on their own. It seems that that's the way it is. They may not have human company, but we praise you that you are attentive to every life. And we bless you and praise you for that gracious King. In the precious name of Jesus, amen. <clears throat> amen. Thank you, everybody. Please be seated. Oh, we thank you. We're flicking to the beginning. Well, it's a great privilege to be able to talk to you this morning. And the subject you would have seen maybe there, um, that the, the caption that I'm just using, is this caption of the two wills. I'm talking about, um, you know, not... Um, um, Australian explorers here, the two worlds. I'm talking about the fact that, um, that the when we look at the scriptures, it seems as if God has got two basic um, uh, and somewhat different um, wills for humanity. He's got the Old Covenant and the Mosaic Covenant, and he's got the Messianic, Messianic Covenant. He's got what he's done in Jesus. And these, these two seem to be so different in some ways. And um, what we discover from the book that we're looking at today, we're looking at the book of Hebrews, and, uh, and our reading comes from the 10th chapter, but in that passage we discover that, the, that the, the Mosaic Covenant was a temporary legal arrangement for Israel, and it was designed to cover them, as it were, until the Messiah came. It was designed to, to, do, to, to kind of uh, cover their transgressions so that the judgment of God did not come upon them uh, because God intended to send his Messiah, uh, the Lamb of God, in whom all these issues would be resolved. Uh, but um, in the meantime, uh, this is what uh, was happening, was that the sacrifices that were given uh, under the Mosaic uh, Covenant were there as a covering, a kind of a temporary stay of judgment, as it were, until the Messiah came and resolved things. This letter is called the, the letter to the Hebrews, and it's written by somebody we don't actually know who wrote this letter. Uh, one of the first early Christian leaders wrote this letter, and he wrote it uh, at, at a time when, um, the, in the first century, when what was happening was that, the, that it was becoming apparent that the Christian community, uh, those that were coming to believe in Jesus as the Messiah and the wider Jewish community, that were scattered all over the, the, the world, not just the Roman Empire, but there were Jewish communities all through the, uh, the ancient world, right the way through to China. There were these communities. And uh, they were scattered everywhere, uh, obviously doing business and uh, living their lives there. And, um, and what he does is he chooses to use the old name. He uses the old name Hebrews that would immediately bring to their mind Abram, Isaac, and Jacob, the very patriarchs, the very beginning of their identity, where it all started. 
and uh, they, would, they would remember that before they were the Jews, as it were, before they had the Mosaic Covenant, they were the children of Israel. They were the children of Jacob. And they would remember that they had a relationship with God. They had an identity um, as, the, as, the, as the family emerging, as a, as, a, as a family that God had made a promise to. And uh, that he was, um, he had his, his somehow or other, we, they were caught up in the will of, uh, of Yahweh. They were caught up in the will of the great God, the Lord of heaven and earth, the most high God had somehow chosen them as a family in order that they might be the ones through whom he would, he would speak to the nations. And, and so they, this, this name is, is kind of a very evocative name for them. It, it reminds them of who they really are, as it were. And, um, and it's just an absolutely remarkable letter because in this letter, what he's doing is he's saying to the Jewish community across the world, he's saying, there's been always, uh, um, you know, there was, we were there before the Mosaic community, uh, the Mosaic uh, covenant was formed. We were already the people of, uh, of God, as it were. And there's always been, through our tradition, there's always been a kind of a faith relationship with God. There's always been a kind of a relationship with God that was, that was kind of spiritual and real, and that was before the, 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 the sacrifices and before the law. It was there and and the law didn't remove that. Um, the law kind of came to, to deal with some of the social consequences of those people who misbehaved. They needed rule. They needed some kind of uh, restraint. Uh, and the law provided that restraint. But in spite of that, all throughout our history, there were those people that had a relationship with God that was based not so much upon the law, but was based upon the fact that God made himself known to them. And they learned to trust him and they acted in an amazing way uh, throughout the nation's history not on the basis of the law but on the basis of this this bond that was there this, a real bond between themselves and God and if you if you want to know more about that you'll find it in Hebrews chapter 11 because there's a whole list of people there who before the law and after the law was given they had they acted not out of the law but they acted out of this sense of spiritual connectedness with God that we now think of as faith and um, at the reading that we have, uh, we, it just jumps in in chapter 10 and verse 5, and it says, that is why, which raises a question. What do you mean, that is why? It just says, that is why when Messiah came into the world, he said to God, you did not want animal sacrifices or burnt offerings, but you've given me a body to offer. You were not pleased with burnt offerings or other offerings for sin. Then I said, look, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written about me in the Scriptures. A bit of background on this is the writer is saying back there in Psalm 40, which is what he's quoting there, the Messiah is quoted as speaking to God. When the Messiah came into the world, he said to God. So here we've got this amazing picture of a psalmist who kind of sees, in a supernatural way, he sees a conversation between the Messiah and, 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 the, uh, and the God of heaven and earth. And in this conversation, the Messiah is speaking to him, and, and, and the psalmist is writing it down as a record of what happened. And so this writer, he brings that out. He said, guys, remember one of the Psalms that actually pointed out the limitations of the law of Moses. When it, and, and he said it in these amazing ways. The Messiah said, 
God was not actually interested in animal sacrifices. They didn't please him. But what he was doing was he was, he was going to send the Messiah and he was going to send the Messiah in a body. He was going to send him as a human being. And that that, that was going to be result in the offering of that body. I mean, just imagine the average Jew who's listening to this. They're kind of going, the what, the what? How did I miss this? You know, I mean, why didn't I hear this in shul? Why didn't I hear this in the synagogue? Why wasn't I taught this? You know, well, uh, well, this is one of those issues. You know, very often we see in, in all kinds of uh, thought and philosophical development, people build these theories. And, and, and outside the theories, there's information and there's knowledge and there's science and all that sort of stuff that questions the theory. And they'll just push it aside a little bit because they don't want to go to all the effort of reworking their theory. And so you land up with a theory that's got the evidence that contradicts it sort of ignored. We've seen that, haven't we? You know, and this is what happened in Israel. That what they did was they produced an understanding of what the law was meant to achieve, and they ignored some important parts. And our writer, the writer of the Hebrews, says, "Oh, wait a minute, we forgot that bit, didn't we? That that this passage actually tells us the Messiah was not just going to come in our kind of traditional expectation as a mighty God, a son of God a person who was going to, you know, beat back the Romans and all that sort of thing. We forgot this bit that talks about him actually offering himself, you know, offering himself. And what he says is he makes the point that the sacrifices that were offered never really pleased God. And they didn't please God because they never really resolved sin. They only delayed punishment. That's, that's why the father was never really satisfied with that. He knew that there's still issues to be dealt with. And what he was looking for, he was looking for a permanent solution. And the permanent solution was in the sacrifice of his son's life. And that's what Jesus describes here, here in verse 7. He says, look, I've come to actually do what you wanted, Father, as it is written of me in the Scriptures. And this is his point here is that um, uh, uh, we just read it on. It says, first, Messiah said you did not want animal sacrifices or sin offerings or burnt offerings or other offerings for sin, nor were you pleased with them, though they were required by the law of Moses. And then he said, look, I come to do your will. He cancels the first covenant in order to put the second into effect. For God's will for us to be, was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all. <laughs> we better go back to that is why. And that on the that is why passage, which is just in 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 the in the beginning of 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 chapter ten, it says this. It says that the old system of the law of Moses was only a shadow, a dim preview of the good things to come, but not the things themselves. Just a moment on that, you know. The old covenant, which had ha was included the promises to Abraham, uh, and the, those promises were fulfilled in the in you know the promise of the land particularly, uh, 
that the land, the promised land, was to be the inheritance they were to receive and every family would have their own property. They would have their own fig tree and their own vineyard, their own bit of land. And, 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 and this really clicked into the language of the, the Hebrews because one of the things that the Hebrews phrase, the name the Hebrews reminded them of, is it reminded them of their time of wandering when they were homeless, you know, when they were just still wandering uh, and they didn't own and possess any anything. But in this particular uh, uh, system, the, pro the promise to Abraham was that you will have a home and your children will have a home and, uh, and I'm going to give you children, thousands of, of them, uh, they're going to have a home and they, that home is going to be in uh, Israel and they'll all have their little bit of land. And what this passage is saying is it's saying that that system was just a shadow of a preview of the good things to come. In other words, that promise was never meant to be the sum total of our understanding of what God wanted for us or for them. It was like a shadow. It was actually to point beyond. And when you get to chapter 11, you'll see that the, there's Time and time again, there's references to the fact that these people who actually did receive a, an, an inheritance in the promise land, some of them, they realized it wasn't like that. And the scripture says they looked for a city whose founder was God, a heavenly city. They realized that God had a bigger plan than that. So the good things that were promised in the Mosaic Covenant were never intended to be the be-all and the end-all of God's purposes for Israel. And he makes the point that sacrifices under that system were repeated again and again, year after year, but they were never able to provide perfect cleansing. Never able to provide perfect cleansing for those who came to worship. And if they could have provided perfect cleansing, the sacrifices would have stopped, for the worshippers would have been purified once for all time, and their feelings of guilt would have disappeared. He is so on point. He makes the point that even though the worshippers went up to the ta temple and they made those sacrifices, particularly the Day of Atonement when the whole nation, there was the holiest day when all the sins of the nation were, 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 were represented by the high priest who he laid his hand upon the, on the sacrifice and he confessed the sins of the nation and they all, the true believers, devoted ones, they were there identifying with that moment when their sins were being proclaimed and declared over that animal before it was sacrificed and that sort of thing, they went away without the conviction that their sin had actually been dealt with. They still had the feelings of guilt in their minds. And he reminds them that that's what it was really going on. Uh, you know, behind this, you know, everybody looked good and it all sounded good, but psychologically they knew that things were not right in their hearts. In fact, those sacrifices reminded them of their sin year after year because it's simply not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the old covenant, God gives it to them in order to restrain sin and he gives it to them as actually a means, a, what the Paul calls a schoolmaster, to bring them to the Messiah. To, so that they understand how much they need a saviour. It was not to be the saviour, but the pointer to the saviour, so that they could see and understand that they needed someone to do something more for them. And that's the, the witness of the Spirit in the law to the, to the uh, Messianic covenant. 
The what actually God wanted was he didn't so much want continual sacrifices year after year. What he wanted, he wanted people to be made holy legally. That was in a legal way. He wanted the relationship between he and them to be right. But he actually wanted us to be not just holy in a legal way, but he wanted us to be holy in an actual way, in the way in which we lived. And that that was something that was to be for once for all time that didn't require another sacrifice. That's what the passage says that we've, we've been reading. For God's will was for us to be made holy by the sacrifice of the body of Jesus the Messiah once for all time. And now this phrase, what does it mean to be holy? Because I think that I grew up in the church and I remember that this language of holiness was always a bit of a downer for me because I had a feeling that what it did was it just sucked all the joy out of life and you couldn't be holy and happy. You know, that was the idea. If You could be either holy or happy, but you couldn't be holy and happy, you know. And so I, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be holy. And, you know, actually, this is not just a little Pentecostal problem. This is a human problem, that they have the feeling, everybody has the feeling that God takes all the joy and buzz out of life. You know, and he's, so been, he's been so misrepresented, and I get the feeling maybe we did that. You know, act, not intentionally, but maybe we built a kind of a, a kind of a form of religion that was constantly focusing on people's sins and constantly focusing on their failures and not focusing enough upon the grace and the provision of God for us. You know, and so no wonder people thought to themselves, "I don't think I want to be a part of this." You know, although it's interesting, you know, when Pentecost began, you remember what they used to call them? Call them the happy clappers. You know. You know, but it was a bit intimidating, that kind of happiness, you know. Anyway, huh, it's a hard thing to win these the battles of perception. But this is the thing about holiness. Holiness is something so much more than, than uh, just sort of, uh, you know, wearing a tie and a white shirt and, uh, and behaving yourself, at least in public, you know, as a, as a kind of a really straight shirt type person. Uh, holiness is being like God in every respect through redemption and relationship with God. In other words, what God does when he comes into relationship with somebody, it is after all God coming into relationship. And he has a way of soaking us with his love. And in that soaking process, transformation happens. And, uh, and so... Holiness is, is like God in every respect. It's not just in terms of his moral purity. But the moral purity is absolutely fundamental, but it doesn't stop at that. The moral purity allows for the rest of the nature of God to be active in us and through us. He invites us and calls us to be separated from the common way of living the common use uh, and, and, and purpose. The reason why people live in the world is it's, uh, you know, they've got, they've got their own ambitions and their own desires and fundamentally, you know, the politicians say there is one principle that you can absolutely count on uh, in a political environment and that is self-interest. You know, you always design your policy around self-interest because you know people will vote that way. It's just nature. You know, and so the challenge for us in the, I, as Christians is to recognize the fact that that doesn't just stop when we become Christians. It's part of who we are. And, and the challenge is for the, the Holy Spirit to give us a deep transformation in our inner being. Now, um, 
the exchange, we're separated, it's not just what we're separated from that defines holiness. Holiness is defined more by what we're separated unto. And we are separated from the spirit of the world in order that we might enter into the divine purpose that is so, it's not only morally pure, but it is so creative. It, it produces results and solutions to human problems and predicaments. That's the challenge. There are so many situations, whether those are relational problems or whether they're technical and scientific or whatever. The Holy Spirit is the very spirit of creation. And when we open up our hearts to the Holy Spirit, he gives us skill and knowledge and understanding beyond what we could naturally receive. It's also that the nature of God is so redemptive. He's always looking for ways to save people, to rescue people. He's not looking for ways to destroy them and to judge them and to ruin them. The Messiah makes this possible. You know, that's the wonderful thing about the death of Christ is it makes it possible for God to look at every human being uh, through the eyes of saving and to find ways by which people can be redeemed and situations can be redeemed and families can be redeemed and marriages can be redeemed and health can be redeemed and finances can be redeemed and nations can be redeemed and communities can be redeemed. It's God's holy obsession because he's manifested in his son. It's what God does. He restores people. He restores stuff. Isn't it wonderful? Good news. As a result of that redemptive work that's all based in the salvation act of Christ, we get this wonderful sense of holy triumph. It's not triumphalism where we just, you know, we just skite on the fact that we are just so, so cool and we're just so together. You know, it's not that. It's about the fact that that triumph is not just for us, but it's for the whole of humanity in Jesus Christ. He triumphs over sin, death, and hell for everybody. Oh, say hallelujah. Amen. <laughs> yeah, and it's eternal. This glorious nature of God, it's not just a temporary solution. It's a fix, a real fix. And how are we made holy? This, this, if this is the will of the Father, and this is only achievable through the incarnation of the Son, well, he's done his part. He's done his part in providing th this amazing work of redemption, this rescue plan, in the physical body of the Messiah on our behalf. And our part in response to that is to live in faith, not just that the redemptive act has rescued us, but, that, that, but, but why we have been rescued. We've been rescued by the spirit of the divine will that gave rise to the Messiah's sacrifice. What was God, what moved God to, to, to sacrifice his son? And what moved him was his deep, permanent love for the world that's what moved him and that's the spirit of our salvation that deep permanent strong triumphant love of god that's what actually that's the spirit of the sacrifice that's the spirit of the covenant isn't that exciting you know that oh just so so wonderful you know to reflect on it and, uh, and so faith is not just about uh, relying upon the fact that Jesus died for our sins. Faith is also trusting why he died. You know, and that that why he died never stops. You know, that never stops. That continues to flow from the heart of God toward us. 
So how do we live this life of faith? Well, let's just define it a little bit. Faith means to trust in, to rely upon, and to commit to. And as you can see those three words, you can see each one takes, the re- it takes faith to another level. It, it just takes it to a deeper level. It's going deeper. And, 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 but in what direction is it going? It's, it's a relational term, actually. It's, it's, it's the building of trust in someone. And, and we start to trust Jesus a little bit, and then we discover through hard times that that trust has got to become a deep reliance, you know, because we haven't got any alternative, so we rely upon him. And then as we go through those times together and he proves himself faithful, we realize that, oh, he's calling us into actual relationship. He's calling us beyond just relying upon him as a fire insurance policy uh, to, to actually, he can be trusted and he really loves me. And uh, what am I doing holding out on him? So we commit to God the Father who's made his heart and desire and purpose known to us, especially in his Son and his Son's sacrifice on our behalf. And, and so we trust that the Father is motivated by true love and can be relied upon. You know, it's, it's Old Testament to think about the Christian faith as a, a set of religious ideas we've got to adhere to. You know, New Testament is... Put the ideas aside and see the the Father and see the Son and see the Holy Spirit and see that we are called into relationship. And and that those things, there are just no abstract qualities like love. There are no abstract qualities like faith, like hope. These are manifestations of the nature of God. This is who God is. And so when we talk about hope, it's just a verbal convenience to call it hope. We're actually talking about the heart of God. That's what we're talking about. And all that stuff just comes as a bundle, you know, comes as a bundle in, in a loving relationship with God. When we come into relationship with him, the whole bundle comes. The faith comes, the hope comes, the love comes, the peace comes, you know, the power comes. It all comes as a bundle because that is God. That's what holiness is. It's the sum total of God's nature that comes to us as we relate to him. And the challenge for us is, the challenge for us is to constantly stop, uh, uh, get the magic mentality out of our minds. You know, I was thinking about, I was thinking about um, uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. (laughs) (laughs) Were you? you, That's two of us. We're thinking about Monty Python and the Holy Grail. The point was, you know, that there they go searching for the cup that was used by Jesus in the last uh, supper. Right? And the reason why they're doing that is because they think the power is in the cup. See? They think that if they can get the cup, they've got the, they've got the key to power and everything in the world. They've got the, there's morta- immortality and all that stuff. It's all in the cup. Whoever's got the cup's got the deal. You know? And in other words, what we're always tending to do is we're always tending to exclude God from the equation. If we can find a way of getting health and power and immortality without God, uh, that's what we'll go for. That's the mindset. As if God should be avoided. As if, as if, we sh- you know, as if the world is better without God. Whose lie is that? Whose lie is that? You know... The more we, this is what faith is. Faith will risk getting to know God. Faith will focus not upon the stuff, but will focus upon the God, the giver, the maker, the sustainer of everything. God, and this is the thing about the kingdom. What's the difference between the kingdom and everything else? The difference between the kingdom and everything else is not that the kingdom doesn't have any stuff. It's about why it has the stuff and whose stuff it is. 
And who cares about the stuff? Because we're in relationship with the king. You know, that beats everything. That tops the lot. And that's what Jesus came to restore. He came to restore opportunity for faith that is relational. Faith that knows who is the king of kings. Knows him as father. Knows him as lord. And when we come to that place, we know that our, f- our triumph is not because we've remembered all the right scriptures. It's got nothing to do with that. Our triumph is because we have come to trust in the one whose word it is. You know, that's what makes it powerful, because he spoke it. So we respond out of that, and I'm getting excited and running out of time. But the... What we find in our scripture today, however, is that, that the Messiah says to the, fa- says to the Father, he says, you didn't want sacrifices and offerings, a body you have prepared for me th- by which and through which I will do your will, what you really want. And the challenge for us as we come at Christmas time is to take a moment to think about how the Father prepared his son for this great work of redemption. One of the, the a good starting point is, is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 19, following. In this, in this verse, and I'll just read it to you, it's such a wonderful passage. It says this, For you know that God paid a ransom to save you, from the empty life you inherited from your ancestors. Take a moment there. Our ancestors have been telling us how things work in the world and uh, how you get as much money as you can, you know, how you get as much power and influence as you can, how you look as good as you can, you know, all that sort of very superficial external stuff, material stuff. They've told you that's what the game is. And what Peter says, he says, this is actually an empty way of life. It doesn't actually reach the deep longing of the heart. You know, it doesn't actually heal us. We'll never be healed by more money, or we'll never be healed by more significance, that sort of stuff. That's never going to touch us. He says, we've been saved by that, ransomed from it. Thank God. And the ransom he paid was not mere gold or silver. It was the precious blood of the Messiah, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, God chose him as our ransom long before the world was created. But he has now revealed him to you in these last days. He chose him before the world was created. Now this is when we're talking about how he prepares this body for his son. This is the thing. That before God spoke the word uh, that, that brought the creation into existence, before he said, let there be light, and said those first dramatic words, he had already decided that if he was to create the world and to create humanity, he would have to redeem them. Because that was one of the, the natures of the creature that he was going to create. He was going to create a, a creature with the potential to make wrong decisions, to make silly decisions and to go down rabbit holes. You know, he was going to have to do something to save that vulnerable creature. And so before the creation is created, the decision is made that to redeem. And, 
And that decision, once it's made and once it's decided by the Father and the Son and the Spirit, it is as if it has happened. When God makes a decision, he does not change his mind. And so the creation was actually occurred on that foundation that it would be redeemed, that we would be redeemed. So it's not a mystery. It didn't come to the sun, you know, you know that, uh, that there was a sort of a, you know, a, a text message to, to Jesus who was out playing golf one day on the, on the verdant pastures of heaven, uh, you know, pop into my office. Uh, when you get back, you know, and he says, <coughs> the father says, it's something I didn't mention to you, uh, but we started this glorious thing, but it's going to result in you having to give your life for these people. No, they'd already made that decision beforehand. They knew. This is my point. People sometimes say, why is there so much suffering? Why are so many people going to hell? What we learn from this is that before he decided to create everything, he took the responsible decision on behalf of men and women's sin and suffering. He took that decision. That's a critical point. And that there's no need for people to go to hell. Nobody goes there by accident. Nobody goes there because God's being spiteful. Nobody goes there because, you know what I mean, there, just there, was, a fa- there was a fault in the heavenly book computer system doesn't happen that way at, at all. Moving on. And then there's that long story of the family line of Mary and Joseph when the process actually starts and the miracle of the incarnation, the mystery of his gene code representing all humanity. They talk about mitochondrial Eve, the way in which in our mitochondria we all share this common trace right the way back to somebody that we know that's called Eve. Uh, but he represents not just the Jewish community, but, but in his DNA, as it were, in his humanity, he represents the whole human family. And God and his wisdom put it all together, and it's just an amazing story, something that I don't understand, but I delight to think about. And in those humble, humble circumstances of the, of the, of the, 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 the manger, <laughs> God is outworking his redemptive plan for humanity. Isn't it absolutely amazing? You can imagine, can't you, here we're going to take the symbols of the body of Christ in our hands now. And singers, if you'd like to come, we're going to take these symbols of the body of Christ. Uh, but that body didn't just sort of miraculously uh, manifest it came through the natural process. It came through the natural process of conception miraculously, but thereafter the little child is forming through gestation in Mary's womb. And when she bears that child, she knows to some degree, she has some kind of an understanding, some kind of a, a sense that this uh, this is going to end very differently. And... Uh, I was thinking about how, you know, the wise men, when they came uh, to, to Herod, and it was, it's like the one who is bringing gold uh, kind of is the spokesman. And he says, where is he who, who is the king of the Jews? Because that gold in his gift represents his kingship. 
and, 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 he, and he touched Herod's button uh, because Herod was into power, you know, and when, when it sounded like somebody was coming who was going to take over his throne, uh, that really got him going, and he did all sorts of sneaky things to try to make sure that didn't happen. I wonder if one of the other wise men had stood up and, and said, where is he, say the one with the frankincense, and he said, where is he who is going to be the one who mediates who represents humanity to God and makes the peace for us. You know. Would there have been a different reaction? <laughs> what if it had been the one with the myrrh who had said, where is he that is going to offer himself? Because myrrh represents, it was a burial, it was a burial f- uh, fragrance. Where is he that's going to offer himself for the reconciliation of the world and the sin there is a solution to sin. As we take this bread today, I want to encourage us just to have a look at this. Um, oh, I've got to click it on and advance it. I suggest that what we do with this wafer is that we, we remember that that child became the crucified saviour and that he became the resurrected saviour but it followed this amazing miraculous incarnational process and so i ask us as you prepare your way for now to just think about these words at this spot and we'll say them together shall we this wafer prepares the body of the messiah jesus he offered himself for us and all our sins those committed by us against others and those committed against us by others. Just stop there for a moment. Remember Jesus saying, forgive as I have forgiven you. If you don't forgive, you can't receive it. We all carry that stuff, don't we? There are all those people that have done things in our past and that have left their scars upon us. And what we do in this is we say we're free from the power of that stuff. We're not diminished by those things committed against us. We're not robbed by them. You know, our, our Saviour has seen to that. He's provided, more than provided for us in his dear Son. So we're not going to hold a grudge. We're going to let it go. We're going to let it go because he died not just for us, but he died for those who committed sins against us. Because let's be honest, we've done a lot of stuff we're embarrassed and ashamed of, haven't we? Thankfully, thankfully, what he did helps them, helps them as well. So forgiveness is wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. Okay, we can go on. Our conscience and our confidence before God is grounded in his sacrifice, not our own effort. We're going to be confident in our place before God because Jesus secured it. Not because we have. Let's eat together, shall we? In Jesus' name. Let's take the cup together, shall we? And say these words together just as a way of concentrating our thoughts on what we're doing. The contents of this cup represent the covenant God has made with all who rely upon his son's lifeblood as the guarantee of forgiveness 
and inclusion in the will and family of God. In drinking it, we renew our commitment to the Father's goodwill, to embrace it thankfully and to trust his will even when we don't fully understand it. It's goodwill. It's a goodwill. It's done in the spirit of love and he never stops loving us and he's going to continue to love you and work out what is good and right and best in your life. And so when you take the covenant, you're saying, I'm going to trust you, Father. I'm going to trust you and receive the spirit that Jesus made available to me through his death. Let's drink. Thank you, Jesus.